Well, welcome to Renovate. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm the Life Stage 2 pastor here at Christ Chapel. Um, I've been here for about two years, and if you're a guest, I want to welcome you here. We started this ministry this last August, and we have been super thrilled about what's been going on in Renovate and in Life Stage 2, and just want to thank you for being here. We are finishing up our series called Turning the World Upside Down. And uh, it's a pretty lofty sermon title, or sermon series title, but we got it from the scriptures. In Acts chapter 17, there's a, a person who is not a follower of Christ, who, who's a pagan, who refers to those who are following Christ as those men who are turning the world upside down. In a very short amount of time, a small group of disciples of Jesus began to turn the world upside down. And it was crazy. And it was something that, that people were taking notice, notice of, people in power, people who didn't follow Christ, people who did follow Christ, and they were turning the world upside down. But really what that means is pretty simple. And some of you might say, is this really it? But turning the world upside down is just making disciples. It's disciples making other disciples of Jesus Christ. I know that doesn't sound very sexy, very cool, and very exciting, but when you get right down to it, if you really want to build a ministry, if you really want to build a church, if you really want to see your culture, your city turned upside down, it simply comes down to a small group of individuals who love Jesus, who tell other people about Jesus and get them to love and follow Jesus as well. It's that simple. But I personally think that there's a huge deficiency in the church today when it comes to making disciples. And in fact, I saw a study the other day, just a few years ago, that said 43% of regular church attenders have never been discipled and have never discipled someone. Four out of ten people who regularly attend church have never been discipled and have never discipled someone. And I think that's a tragedy. And some of you may say, well, the, the church that I was in didn't offer me anything. I haven't had the opportunity, but I would push back and say, I, I, I don't think so. As a pastor, I'm constantly thinking about how can I help you guys mature in your walk with Christ. That's a part of my, my calling. That's what I love to do. I love to help people grow to know Jesus Christ. But you have a part to play in that. I can remember when I was just out of my baseball career and just getting into the ministry, I was looking for someone to disciple me. I was 24. I didn't really grow up in, in the church. I went to church, was an attender, but I didn't get involved with ministries in the church. And so I knew I had a long way to go. And I can remember this one guy come to an FCA retreat, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he got up and spoke and was dynamic. He had a huge youth ministry in Shreveport, Louisiana, and he had charisma, and he was just larger than life to me as a youth pastor in a small town in Zawali, Louisiana. And I remember thinking, I want this guy to teach me what he knows, which is essentially what discipleship is. It's teaching someone what you know about Jesus Christ. And so that guy didn't know who I was. And after he spoke, there was a line of people that were coming up to talk to him, and I waited in line, and I just said, hey, uh, his name was Paul. I said, Paul, my name's Tyler, and told him a little bit about my background. And I said, Paul, I, I want to learn from you. 
I want you to take me under your wing and I want to grow. I want to learn how to do ministry. I want to learn how to follow Christ. And he said, hey, that'd be great. I was living in Natchitoches, Louisiana at the time, which was about 45 minutes from Shreveport. And he said, I tell you what, every Friday morning at 6 a.m., you come meet me in Shreveport as I meet with a group of youth students at a little restaurant there, a little dive on Friday mornings before school. So I'm like, well, um, how bad do I really want to meet with this guy? That's, that's pretty brutal. Friday morning, I've got to get up at probably 4.30 to get ready and prepare. But I thought, I want this. And so every Friday morning for about two or three months, I drove to Shreveport and just hung out with him and his high school students and developed a lifelong friendship and mentoring relationship with this guy. And he's now planted a church and is thriving, but he's still a guy to this day that speaks into my life and helps me grow. I'm telling you, that is how you grow in your faith, and that's how a ministry grows and ultimately turns the world upside down. And we have a part to play. But when you look at these, um, these just simple Christians in the New Testament, average Christians, they weren't super spiritual. They had jobs. They, um, you know, they did basic stuff. They were tempted with the same things we were tempted with. What makes them different? What was it as you read these narratives, which we've been doing these last six weeks, if you haven't been here, we've been going through different narratives in the book of Acts. What did they have that we don't have? We've talked about different characteristics of a disciple maker, of someone who turns the world upside down, but there's something missing. What did they have that we don't have? And it's one word, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. That word is commitment. That's it. They were committed followers of Christ who were committed to making discipleship a core part of who they were and what their calling was. Didn't matter if they were in the ministry or if they were just a, a silversmith or a shoemaker, or whatever, they were committed to the plan that God has put in place for us to expand His kingdom and to bring transformation to our cultures. They were committed to that. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. And I'll give you a second to get there if you have your Bibles. If you don't, we're going to have it up on the screen. But let me just quickly set the stage of what was going on in Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, um, was passing through to Jerusalem on a ship. And he knew he was going to Jerusalem to be persecuted and possibly, most likely, to die. And as he was passing through to Jerusalem, he wanted to stop at a little town called Miletus, which was about 20 miles from Ephesus, where Paul had spent years working with the church there in Ephesus. And so Paul stopped in Miletus so that he could talk with the leaders of this church in Ephesus. And so they came about 20, 30 miles to meet with Paul on this, um, this town on the shore, smaller town. And Paul spoke to them. And it was a sermon. It was a last will and testament. He knew this was the last time he was ever going to see these group of people that he deeply loved and cared for. The last time. It's the only place in Acts where Paul gives a sermon to believers, not non-believers. Every other sermon was to non-believers. And so this is the one time where Paul says, this is my last will. If I could only tell them one thing, I'm going to preach this sermon. And the sermon was about commitment. And so I want to read the narrative. And then I want to talk about three commitments that are required of us 
in order for us to turn the world upside down, in order for us to change the city of Fort Worth, in order, in order for us to see family members and friends come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, there's three commitments. Number one, I'm just going to give them to you right now and then we'll flesh them out after we read the passage. Number one, a commitment to serve God by serving His people. A commitment to serve God by serving His people. Number two, a commitment to know and share God's Word. And then number three, and this one is one that I really want to focus on, a commitment to oppose, to oppose self-preservation. A commitment to oppose the instinct we have to preserve ourselves. And so let's read this passage and then break it down tonight. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, and we'll go to verse 25, so it's not too long. This is Luke writing. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a powerful passage. What a great speech from Paul. And the first thing I want to focus on is the commitment that Paul had to serve God by serving God's people. If you'll look with me at verse 18, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul, picture this, is in this, this, um, this town talking with these elders. And he says, you know how I lived among you. You know my track record. You know my ministry in the past. You know the years that I suffered and toiled and gave my life to bring the gospel to the people of Asia. You know that because you were one of them. And then he says, I did it by serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. If you've read the book of Acts, you've seen just how difficult it was for Paul and the other apostles. It was horrific. Every place they went, they were persecuted. They were, they were flogged. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were put in prison. They were um, brought before kings and courts and brought to trial, and it was just constant suffering and affliction at every place they went. And Paul said, you know how I lived among you. Paul was fully committed to the believers in Asia. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth, referring to his time in Asia. This is in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there. But he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul laid out to the Corinthian church, look at my life, look at my ministry, look at my commitment as I've served God by serving his people. Even to the point of of despairing of life itself, wanting to die and be with Jesus. Paul wrestled with, man, I, I think I'd rather go be with Jesus because this is so difficult. But then he said, God's not done with me yet. I'm going to stay. And so I can think of a guy uh, recently that I met. Some of you may know him in our church. His name's Brandon Bamey. He's a lawyer here in Fort Worth. He's been a lawyer for decades. He actually led the M28 Film Festival. If you went to that, he was kind of the MC for that night. Really fun guy, really neat guy. But he led the young couple's Brazil trip this last summer. And Ari and I went on the trip. And he had six or seven meetings leading up to that trip. And the couples were horrified of this guy. Because he was so anal. He was so perfectionistic. He had this list of things that every week he's like just hammering us with, with these high expectations of are you getting this done? Are you doing that? And here's what I expect of you and here's what it's going to be. And he was just overwhelming them. And they were like, man, I don't know if I want to go on this trip with this guy to be honest with you. Does he have to go? I mean, he was that annoying and that like controlling that people in the group were coming to me saying we got to deal with this guy we got to do something about this guy I mean he was just like uh, uh, a type a driven dude who wanted to be in control of everything and it was turning everybody off and so we're all kind of skeptical I'm like how am I going to work with this guy on this trip you know it's just going to be just a battle the whole week and so we get on the plane finally the day arrives we fly to Brazil And I'm telling you, the moment his sandals set foot in Brazil, he became a different human being. I saw a completely different side of Brandon Bamey in Brazil. The way he loved the people, the way he served the people, the way he acted with humility, the way he respected the leaders of the ministry that he helped start, Kids Place, in Recife, Brazil, the way he honored the employees, the way he loved them and gave his life for them on that trip and just was there to serve them was phenomenal. And as I look at this passage where it says that Paul served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, that, that was Brandon Bamey on this trip. He was humble. It wasn't all about him. And I've never seen a man cry that much in one week. This guy, I've never dreamed of the way he responded, but he was in tears at the end of the week just loving on the translators and on the leaders and on the teachers and then on us who went on the trip. He was in tears constantly because he loved the people and his calling is to serve God by serving the people of Hasife, Brazil at Kids Place, this wonderful ministry. But he was serving God by serving God's people. And so three quick ways. So what do we do with this? Three quick ways that we can improve on serving God by serving God's people. And the first one is, you've got to spend time with people if you want to start making disciples. You've got to actually get dirty, get down and dirty, and spend time with people who maybe aren't like you, who maybe don't have the same values that you have, but are somebody that God has brought into your life. You have to spend time with them. You have to talk to them. You have to invite them into your little circle. You have to love on them. You have to sacrifice some of your comforts to serve these people. There is no other way to make disciples than investing time. 
And I can attest to that. That most of my time I spend trying to help people learn to be better followers of Christ. That is the large majority of what I do. And I love it. And I guarantee you if you've never done that. When you start to do that. And you start to see these people growing and taking steps towards faith. Or steps towards maturity. It's going to be like a drug for you. It really is fun to be a part of that process in someone's life, but you can't do it unless you spend time with that person. No other way. You can't do it from a distance. And number two, you've got to walk in humility. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the highly educated, highly trained um, stud, went to every city and operated under great humility and, and weakness. And if we want to really have influence with the people in our culture, we have to be humble people, not arrogant, self-righteous Christians. You've all, y'all, y'all have met those types of Christians. Do they have a lot of influence with non-believers? No. You've got, to, you've got to exude humility when you're talking with these people. When you get into conversations with people at work and you think they're dead wrong and everything inside of you wants to win that argument and, 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 and step on them and step over them, you have to respond in humility. Who's the perfect example of that? It's Jesus. He said in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, one of my favorite passages when he's talking about what is greatness in the kingdom of God. He said, greatness in the kingdom of God is to be a servant. If you want to be first in the kingdom, then be last. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, do as I do. So you want to serve people, you want to make disciples, you've got to walk in humility. And then number three, you've got to weep for the spiritual well-being of God's people. Have you ever, have you ever just weeped because you've wanted someone to, to get it so bad that you go to the Lord in prayer and you just weep for them? I bet some of you have wept for your family members. I bet some of you know family members that don't know Jesus and there have been points in your life where you've really reflected and thought, I don't want them to die not knowing Jesus Christ. And you wept. Jesus wept for the, for the city of Jerusalem. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, talking about his fellow Jews, he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul was brokenhearted that his fellow Jews were not seeing the beauty of Christ, were not getting it. And he wept for them to the point that he said, Lord, I'll take their place, but I just want them to experience the things that I've experienced. So we've got to serve people. And the interesting thing is how Paul saw it as serving God. And if you think about it, when Paul was first converted, and there's, a, there's the narrative in the book of Acts, when he was first converted, his name was Saul, and Jesus stopped him on the Damascus road. He was going to persecute more Christians, and Jesus just stopped him. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Who did he say? He said, why are you persecuting me? 
Jesus had already gone and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. Jesus wasn't around when Paul was around. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, I don't even know who you are. But what Paul was doing was persecuting the followers of Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus, you're one with Jesus, you're united to Jesus, and whatever happens to you is happening to Jesus in a sense. Whoever's persecuting you is persecuting Jesus. But also, when you serve people, you're serving Jesus Christ and doing that. Because God's people and Jesus himself are one in the church. We're one body. We're united to him. I did a wedding last weekend and I said marriage is a picture of the gospel because it's a union between a man and a woman and they become one just as the bride of Christ and the groom Jesus become one. And so when you serve God's people, you're serving Christ himself. The second commitment we got to have a commitment to know and share God's Word. It says in verse 20, You yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 27 he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was an expert in the Bible, the Old Testament. Paul knew it inside and out. And Paul loved the Word of God, and in fact, he was in prison, I think it was in 2 Corinthians, and he asked Timothy to bring him his books, to bring him the Scriptures, because he loved the Word of God, and he knew the Word of God. I think we're in a bad place in our culture, especially your generation, because a lot of people profess to be believers, to pro they profess to be Christians, and they don't have a clue what the Bible says about what that means. And in fact, I was in seminary in my first Old Testament survey class, and Dr. Mudliar, um, who's a guy who knows more scripture than anybody I've ever met, I would put him up against anybody. The first day of class, here's what he says to a group of people training to be ministers. Raise your hand if you can tell me all the books of the Old and New Testament in their order. This is a class of about 75 to 100. How many people raised their hand? Not one. Not one. And then he said, raise your hand if you can tell me the Ten Commandments in the proper order from Exodus 20. Guess how many people raised their hand. I'm sure some were scared that they would mess up in front of everybody. But no one raised their hand. That's shocking to me and that was convicting to me. I left there going, Tyler, what in the world? You're training to lead other people. You're training to shepherd God's flock and you don't even know all the books of the Bible in their proper order. Another recent survey from Lifeway Research found that 58% of people who are regular attenders read their Bible less than once a month. 58%. 18% never read their Bible, they said on the survey. They said, I'm a Christian, I'm a regular attender of the church, and I never read the Bible. I'm telling you guys, if we want to make an impact in the city of Fort Worth, we have to become lovers of God's Word. We've got to be committed to building our knowledge of God's Word and then sharing it. And in that passage that we just looked at, Paul talked about how I testified to the whole counsel of God. Both in public gatherings and from house to house, Paul was constantly talking about the Word of God with people. He was sharing it. I meet with a group of guys on Thursday morning. Um, there's a guy who mentors and disciples us. 
and we talk about different things, we read different books, and he always says, the most important thing you can do, the thing that, if you do this, I'll, I'll think that I've been a success, go pass on what you're learning. Go pass on what you're learning. Don't keep it to yourself. So, two things, guys, for application. Number one, if you haven't started a Bible reading plan, you've got to. You can't be reading the Bible once a month and really start to experience the grace and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel and really start to build your confidence that you can go into the world and have something to say when people are wanting answers. You can't do that based on you know, what is in your brain right now. And most of what's in our brains is from movies and pop psychology and self-help stuff and what our parents told us and not all of that's bad. But you have to be a regular reader of God's Word. And I'm telling you, the best way to do that is just to start a Bible reading program. You can Google Bible reading programs, yearly Bible reading, and there'll be a gazillion you can choose from. And you just start today. And guess what? If you miss a day, if you miss two days, if you miss three days, don't quit. This isn't about a legalistic you know, check it off the list. It's about loving God enough to want to know what He says to us through His Word. And then share it. And the best way to share it is when you have your time in the Word, or if you have your time in your small group, or if you hear a sermon on Sunday morning or on Wednesday nights, and you think, man, that really hit me. That got me. Go tell somebody about it. If you're eating lunch with somebody you work with, say, hey, I, you know, I was, I was listening to a sermon at Christ Chapel the other day, and this really spoke to me. Share what you're learning. The number three, the final one, the toughest one by far for us in this culture, a commitment to oppose self-preservation. Verse 24 is one of the greatest verses in the New Testament, in my opinion. Let me set it up in verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So here's what, Paul's, here's what Paul is saying right now. He's saying, I am constrained, I am compelled, I am drawn to go to the city of Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is pushing him there. But then the Holy Spirit also set, testifies to him that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. God is telling him, I want you to go there. And he's telling him, guess what you're going to find when you get there? Affliction, pain, suffering, and imprisonment. Not fun things. Not an exciting trip. Not a short-term mission trip to Belize. This is going to experience extreme suffering. And how did Paul respond to those words from the Holy Spirit? Verse 24, if you don't get anything, get this verse. Go home and think about this. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. Paul said, hey, I don't account my life of any value or precious to myself. He doesn't stop there. There's a reason he thinks that way about his life and the the amount of time he puts into saving and preserving his life. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's saying, you know what? I don't care about my life. 
I'm not going to spend all my time thinking about how I can protect it, how I can preserve it, how I can preserve my reputation and protect my physical well-being and build my own little comfortable, easy empire. That's not what I live for, Paul says. My only concern is to finish the course and the ministry that Jesus has given me. And that is to preach the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all I care about. And if I die, I die. If I live, I live. But that's my mission in life. That's my calling. And guys, I think sadly in our culture, that's not what we're being told. That's not the message that you're hearing in college about what the future holds for you. The message that we're hearing from our parents is not that. I'm sure there's a few in here, but most of our parents, that's not the message. The message is, you do whatever it takes. You pick the right job. You pick the right spouse. You pick the right career. You pick the right place to live so that you can preserve your well-being and your comfort and your ease. And you know what? You've reached your, your goal. If you can get to the end of your life and you can retire and you can coast and you can live a nice, easy life, that is not how we're going to turn this city upside down. If all of our goals are, are to build that life preservation. And guess what? I'm guilty too. I went to visit a guy in our church last week with my wife, Ari. And he's been given a death sentence. They found out he's got brain cancer. And it came out of the blue. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. But otherwise was in great shape. He was sharp. Godly man. And he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, this is not good. You're looking at about three to four months. And so Ari and I go to his house and we sit down and I'm fighting back tears the whole time. Because I realized that I'm not ready for that. I realized God spoke to me through him that Tyler, you're spending a lot of time trying to protect you and your family. Yeah, you're a pastor and yeah, you, you do these things, but you are focused on how can I protect my life? How can I build a comfortable life for my kids and my wife? How can I make it safe? And God was telling me through this godly man, that is not the focus that you should have. Because you're not in control of any of that. You could have cancer the next day and it could be over. Are you ready to face me? And I thought, I'm not. Because as much as I get up here and I talk about this stuff, sometimes I don't really believe it. Sometimes I don't really believe that if I give all of my life to sharing the gospel, that that's enough. And I think if I do that, and I lose something precious to me, that my life would be over. And what that's saying is that whatever that precious thing is, is my God. Functionally, that is what my God is. And for Paul, nothing was more precious to him than Jesus Christ and the gospel. He didn't care about his life. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I want to get to that point to where I say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to live recklessly for Jesus Christ. Not foolishly, but recklessly for Jesus Christ. To where my main goal is to fulfill the calling he's given me, which is to preach the gospel and to help Young men and women become more mature followers of Christ. And wherever that takes me, whatever kind of pain and suffering that causes my family, so be it. 
We don't like to be uncomfortable in our culture, and I don't like to be uncomfortable. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that's Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This has got to be a commitment for us as a ministry. We've got to be committed to serving God by serving God's people. We've got to be committed to knowing God's word and loving God's word and sharing God's word. And then we've got to be committed to fight the the American dream, which is spend your whole life thinking about yourself and how you can build up your little empire. We've got to renounce that and start trying to build God's empire in this world. Because Jesus is the king of this world and we're his ambassadors who've been called to give up and renounce everything so that we can wholeheartedly pursue Jesus Christ. What I'm not saying right now is that that means all of you need to quit your jobs and become pastors. God wants you to do that in the midst of what he's called you to do right now. As we end this series, it's really simple, guys. We don't have to have flashy things here. We don't have to have the cool, most relevant stuff. It's so hard to keep up with that. All we have to do is be committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. All we have to do is be committed to seeing God's kingdom come down to this earth. God's kingdom come down to Fort Worth through practicing these things we've talked about these last six weeks. And being committed to these things that Paul talked about. His last ever message to these Ephesian elders. And after the message, I I can just imagine it. They all got together and hugged each other. The Bible says they were weeping because they loved Paul. And Paul loved them. Given his life for them. And he knew that he would never see them again. And that he was actually going To his death. But I'm telling you. Jesus Christ. Renounced everything. Everything that he had. Tens of thousands of angels. Worshipping him every day. In the heavenlies. He was the king. He had it all. And he gave it up. And came into this filthy sinful world. And took on human flesh. And became a servant. And made himself nothing, Paul says in Philippians 2. So that he might give us life and hope and forgiveness. And a new mission and a new calling and a new joy. He gave it all up. And he's calling us to do that today. And I want to be a part of helping you guys get to that point. Are we there yet? Not even close. But I want to see you take steps towards making these commitments in your life because they're worth it. I love this quote. I'm going to end with this and then we'll pray. I've mentioned Jim Elliott before. But Jim Elliott, who is a missionary to the Aachen Indians um, in South America, was killed by these very Indians that he was sharing the gospel with and that he was loving and serving Brutally killed by them with spears one day out of the blue. Him and four other guys. But in Jim Elliott's journals, listen to this. 
He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Too many of us are working so hard to keep things that we're not going to be able to keep eternally. And what Jim said was, hey, I'm more than willing to give up the things that I cannot keep to gain the things that I cannot lose. And I can promise you this. If you pursue this life that we're calling you to, this life of following Jesus and making other followers of Jesus, you will gain things that you will never lose. And Paul knew that better than we did. That there was a crown waiting for him. That there was rewards waiting for him. There was that that face-to-face with Jesus who was going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You finished the race. You fulfilled the ministry that I called you to. Well done. Come and enter into a life of peace and joy. That's what I want, and that's what I want for you. Let's pray together. Father, may we be a people who gives what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. May we be a people who would be defined by commitment, not to preserving ourselves, but to giving up our lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, may we be committed to loving your word and studying your word and sharing your word, and may we be committed to serving you by serving your people. Lord, if this ministry is just built on human effort, it's going to be, honestly, it's going to be weak and it's going to be like uh, dew in the morning that's there one minute and gone the next. But Father, we did this sermon series as we started this new year to emphasize that if this ministry is built on the simple task, yet difficult task of making disciples. We're going to see you move in mighty ways. Lord, give us the strength to do that. We love you and we thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin, but you sent your son to die for our sins that we might have life and have a new mission. May we fulfill it. May we run the course in Jesus' name. Amen.